It's showtime, folks. Son now. Ali to the left. Son on a mission to go alone. This is sensational. World class. Welcome to the Know It All Podcast. We got a wonderful show today. We're going to go over the Champions League results during the week. We got three really big results uh, to break down over the Champions League this week. And then we're going to go go into into our our movie movie review with Rita Cinema. We're going to do the impressive movie, Mank, by David Fincher. And then we're going to break down some TV. We're going to go to The Crown with Dr. M. Sage. The action-packed and fun-filled show. Let's get into the Champions League results. Really, uh, only about three games really uh, mattered during the Champions League. The Manchester United-Red Bull-Leipzig matchup, the uh, Inter Milan-Shakhtar uh, Donetsk matchup, and the Real Madrid-Gladbach uh, matchup uh, at Atlanta. At Atlanta and Ajax really had some importance to it. Also, uh, the Atletico madrid Matchup versus uh, Red Bull Salzburg add uh, some importance to it. So let's get into the big three of them, though. Manchester United versus Red Bull Leipzig. And uh, we got the dud from Manchester United. Came out flat, as they have pretty much all year long. And they just did not have what it takes. They tried to battle back, but they did not have what it takes to battle back. Red Bull Leipzig moves on. Manchester United probably goes where they should always have been into the Europa League. Uh, I thought Red Bull Leipzig uh, really played well uh, to start out the game. Uh, Brought the energy, brought the effort right to uh, Manchester United. And uh, put them on the back heels and uh, attacked them, and uh, there was no answer for uh, Manchester United. Got some goals early, uh, balanced this, um, balanced them out, and uh, then I thought they uh, sort of retreated back, and I didn't like that strategy. That's not what RB Leipzig is really best at, and I, I thought it let Manchester United back into the game a little bit as they sort of pushed, but... Uh, Nonetheless, they got behind just by too much uh, that Manchester United could not fight back, and it was a nice win by uh, RB Leipzig uh, to move on into the Champions League uh, knockout stage. It'll be fun to have them in there. I think they're a little bit more exciting. I think they're also the better team than Manchester United right now. So uh, RB Leipzig moves on. Uh, Speaking of uh, Real Madrid, uh, 
They played a really nice game over the weekend. I thought it was their best one. It wasn't pretty uh, an own goal to win 1-0 over Sevilla, but uh, I, I liked what I saw in it. It continued. Uh, they played great on uh, this week. Uh, dominated Gladback, uh, came out and uh, just uh, got the lead. And once they got up on him, Gladback had nothing to offer. Uh, that being said, I thought Gladback really had... Uh, they just uh, looked like a deer in headlights in that matchup and uh, did not look like they knew how to handle such a situation. But uh, nonetheless, Gladback moves on because... Inter Milan versus Shakhtar Donetsk. Just, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't like the strategy early. They didn't seem to be pushing, and it just uh, it grew and grew and grew on them. And then uh, by those last 10 minutes, they they went full charge trying to get the goal. Shakhtar Donetsk was able to hang on uh, despite uh, Inter having a bunch of opportunities that they could not finish. Uh, didn't understand why uh, Conte did not go uh, earlier on to some of his more offensive weapons like Ericsson, but uh, he just uh, it, he doesn't seem to like those uh, guys, especially Ericsson, and it cost him. And uh, not only will they not be going to the Europa League, which I don't even know if they really wanted to, uh, they're out. And uh, the only thing they have is Syria. Now, um, that being said, this plays into sort of what Conte likes to do. He's never been really successful playing in these uh, European uh, league matchups or uh, contests. Uh, Juventus is probably as far as he had gone. I believe he made it to 16s uh, with Juventus, but he didn't have a lot of success with Chelsea. He's not had success at all with Inter, and he hadn't had success with Juventus. So uh, he focuses on Syria. Uh, I believe he pulled this one off uh, with Chelsea when they didn't have any... Um, European uh, tournament play, and they ended up winning uh, the Premier League that year. So he's certainly going to try to make a push uh, to see if he can uh, move up and uh, win Serie A this year. But uh, I think this is uh, probably about it for Antonio Conte uh, at Inter. Uh, this is probably the last year, even if he does uh, end up pushing and winning Serie A. Uh, really disappointing result there, but uh, Gladback moves on uh, despite uh, having an awful game. I thought they were really the best team in the group up until that last game. First Real Madrid, they really played well uh, that whole group stage, so uh, it'll be good to see them their first time uh, into the knockout stage in Champions League. They uh, did have a nice run in, I believe, the 60s uh, when it was the European uh, Championships. So, uh, Really nice to see Glad back in there. We'll see if they can sort of handle the pressure. They did not look capable of handling the pressure uh, on this week versus Real Madrid. But uh, at Atlanta got the win. Uh, it wasn't pretty. 1-0 versus Ajax. Ajax did not look great. But uh, as we've heard, there have been some troubles coming out of at Atlanta. Uh, Gasparini was thinking about quitting over the weekend because uh, Illich and Papo Gomez, uh, they seem to have a bit of a problem with Gasparini. I I, I just hope uh, this team can sort of find its way back. I hope Gasparini stays. I, I love watching this team. I love watching all these guys play. They've been just tremendous to watch play the last couple of years, and it's just been uh, really poor the last handful of weeks. But they move on into the Champions League. Hopefully everything works itself out there and uh, we get back to the really exciting Atalanta that we've uh, 
learned to love the last uh, couple years. And uh, last Atletico Madrid uh, got the lead and uh, sort of played back, but uh, Salzburg had a bunch of chances and uh, really disturbing the way Atletico Madrid sometimes just uh, won't bend uh, to play the style that they need to play, especially having Jell Felix, who was dropping back uh, way too far. This team should be pushing forward, trying to score goals. They have a ridiculous amount of offensive firepower and weapons, and it Simeone just can't seem to break away from uh, those tactics. And uh, I thought if uh, Salzburg was a little better on the finishing, uh, it could have cost him. But uh, it did not, and uh, Atletico Madrid moves on. It, it's probably a team none of the top teams want to play, but um, I just uh, I think uh, Simeone will blow one of these, especially if he goes up against a team that's uh, lesser than uh, than uh, Atletico Madrid. All right, so let's move on into the weekend of domestic European leagues. Let's start out in the Premier League. What do we have? A big one. The Manchester Derby. Manchester United versus Man City. Uh, I think uh, Manchester United just has no shot in this th- Thing. I, I've loved the way City has looked of late. And uh, at minus 135, I, I think you got to put a little bit here on Manchester City. I, I really like the way Manchester City has played the last couple weeks. They look good. They look back. And uh, right now, they'd probably be my favorites to win the Premier League. So uh, Manchester City minus the 135, I think, is a really good play here. The only uh, counter that is uh, Manchester United really likes these teams that come forward so they can play on the counterattack. That's really their true strength and uh, nature uh, when they're forced to sort of be on the front foot themselves. They just haven't been able to really work out uh, ever since Ole Golan and Shoshire has been there. But uh, Man City, uh, like the minus 135, I think they'll roll in this game. So look for Man City and uh, a great game to watch uh, on Saturday. Uh, the other big game on Saturday, uh, Everton and Chelsea. Uh, can Everton bounce back? They've been really poor. Their defense has been just uh, terrible. They haven't had a clean sheet since the uh, first match day. Uh, uh, Chelsea is a 135 favorite here, so uh, I don't know if I can tell you that uh, Everton is the play here at plus 325. They just they haven't flowed enough, flowed enough on offense, and they're just... Uh, Really porous on defense. I think Chelsea could take advantage of that. But um, at 135, I do think this Everton team can match up with Chelsea. They have been much better defensively since they've made the goalkeeper switch and uh, Silva's sort of gotten himself in shape and uh, led that back line. Uh, The the thing I would look at is the two and a half uh, over under on goals. I I think this uh, definitely goes over the two and a half, especially with the way Everton's defense has played this year. And uh, you never know when those old demons from Chelsea will all pop on. Um, The other games uh, to look at in the Premier League, Sunday Crystal Palace plays Tottenham. Little bit of a tricky spot for Tottenham. Uh, I'll be curious to see how... uh, Mourinho comes out here. Is he going to sit back versus a Crystal Palace who will sit back? Or is he going to open it up a little more and try to take advantage uh, against Crystal Palace? Crystal Palace has looked good since Zaha has been back. Uh, So a pretty interesting game here. Minus 135 for Tottenham. 
I wouldn't touch that, but I'd be uh, weary of taking the plus 375. The two and a half over under goals seems like a decent little bit uh, take here on the under, but uh, it'll be very curious to see how uh, Mourinho comes out. Arsenal finally has a matchup. They really should win. Minus 185. I take Arsenal here. Burnley seems to uh, slowly have uh, gotten a little bit better, but uh, if Arsenal's going to break out of this slump, this would be the week for them to do it. So Arsenal, uh, minus 185 over Burnley. I don't know how entertaining a matchup is and uh, the way Arsenal's offense has looked lately and uh, just the way Burnley plays overall. I just, uh, I don't know if I could visually watch this, but uh, we'll see if Arsenal can finally uh, get some goals here versus uh, Burnley side, who uh, before the last couple weeks has uh, been letting in more goals than they usually have. Uh, Fulham, Liverpool, I look for Liverpool to score uh, probably early and often in that one, but uh, Fulham's offense has been a little plucky of late. Uh, Interesting matchup that will probably be pretty tight. Entertaining Leicester City versus Brighton. Leicester's coming off a Europa League matchup, so they might not quite have the legs. Uh, so uh, maybe a little look see at Brighton here, but uh, Brighton seems to always find a way to uh, lose games, uh, nonetheless. Uh, before we get into the uh, midweek games for the EPL, we'll do that on Monday. We're just looking at the weekend games uh, right now. We'll move on to La Liga. And what do we got on Saturday? Uh, Sevilla versus Gintafe. Uh, probably a pretty entertaining uh, matchup. I don't know how many goals will be, but uh, two pretty solid teams. Uh, see if Sevilla can bounce back after the Real Madrid loss at plus 110 uh, on the road here. I, I don't know if I'd take that. Uh, the big matchup is the Madrid derby, though. Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid is plus 130. I definitely put money on Atletico Madrid. I think they're the much better team than Real Madrid. And as Real Madrid has lived right for the about a week now, I, I'm really looking for Atletico Madrid here. And the plus 222 seems like a pretty nice uh, value here. If you want to go draw, no bet. I, I, that probably is a safer option. Definitely with these two teams who might... Uh, just be happy to take a point and play for the draw. But uh, I think uh, Atletico Madrid could really stake their claim here in La Liga by uh, taking this one. Uh, Valencia versus Atletico uh, Athletic Club Bilbao uh, should be a nice little entertaining fixture. I I wagered that Athletic Club uh, plus the 140 is pretty decent value here. I haven't always liked the way Valencia's looked this year, so uh, the plus 140 versus Atletico Bilbao, pretty nice uh, options here. Real Sociedad, uh, minus 165 is an easy favorite for Ibar. They have struggled, uh, I say struggled, but they've gotten results, just uh, not wins uh, lately. But uh, I think they get off the schneid here. Real Sociedad minus 165. See if they can uh, break their uh, sort of tie result. Barcelona should have an easy week. I I don't know if you can ever trust Barcelona, though, even versus uh, Levante. But uh, the minus 400 versus uh, Levante might be uh, uh, worth uh, putting taking a look at if you can find a way to uh, work around uh, a goal line uh, wise. Uh, definitely uh, Levante's defense is uh, really porous. So uh, if ever Barcelona was going to rack up some goals, it would be this week. All right. So let's move on to the Bundesliga. We got Dortmund and Stuttgart. Uh, 
Dortmund has not looked great since Holland has been out. Uh, Stuttgart is a poorest team in the Bundesliga. The minus 200, though, it would scare me off the way uh, Dortmund has looked without uh, Holland. I just don't know if uh, I'd be willing to uh, gamble on Dortmund until I've seen them sort of uh, find their rhythm at uh, minus Holland. Uh, RB Leipzig versus Warder Bremen. Uh, RB Leipzig, I'd be a little worried taking the minus 275 here. I think they should win, but uh, they might be a little bit too happy with themselves after the big win on um, on a Tuesday versus uh, Manchester United. The game I'd be the most interested in. Hertha Berlin has looked good the last couple of weeks. Gladbach looked porous in the Champions League. Uh, Gladbach is a 105 favorite. Uh, how do they handle moving on to the knockout stages? Are they a little happy with their success? The plus 280 for Hertha Berlin seems like pretty decent value. So I, I definitely uh, take a look at uh, Hertha Berlin here and uh, the way they've played. Uh, Union Berlin versus Bayern Munich. The way uh, Union Berlin has been giving up goals the last couple of weeks, I look for Munich to cruise past this one, especially since they played their uh, B squad in the Champions League week. So uh, a lot of the A-listers are probably definitely rested and ready to go. Uh, Osberg, Sh- Schalke, if, uh, I don't know if Schalke could get a win here, but uh, these are the kind of ones they need to uh, find a way to get at least points off of if they are going to stay in the Bundesliga. But uh, I would not be willing to uh, take that 280 for Schalke. Definitely, but uh, that two and a half uh, over, uh, I, I think, uh, might be a little nice. I, I think uh, Osberg could give up a goal to a porous scoring Schalke side, and uh, Schalke will definitely concede uh, goals. Uh, Byron Leverkusen minus 130 versus Hoffenheim. Uh, it should be a pretty entertaining game. Uh, definitely a lot of scoring. I look for uh, Leverkusen to continue to cruise. I uh, really like the way this team has played all year long. So the minus 130 on Leverkusen seems like a pretty decent price. The three and a half over under on goals, I'd be a little weary of, but I I do think uh, this uh, definitely uh, will be a high-scoring affair. So uh, if you're willing to take the risk on three and a half uh, on the over, uh, be my guest because it should be an entertaining matchup for sure. We move on to Syria which right now is probably the most entertaining uh, of the domestic European leagues. What do we got uh, Saturday? We don't have a whole lot. Uh, Laszlo versus Verona. Uh, I don't know if that'll be an entertaining matchup, but uh, always good to see uh, how Laszlo breaks out. Uh, Torino, Udizzi's uh, pretty much a snooze fest. But uh, on Sunday, we got some pretty good matchups at Atlanta and Florentina. We'll see how Atlanta bounces uh, back after moving on in the group stage of the Champions League. Can they get themselves back on track in Syria? I, I'm always rooting for it. Uh, I also enjoy watching this Florentina side. So a good matchup overall in this uh, on Sunday versus at Atlanta and Florentina. Inter Milan go to Calgary. Uh, easily heavy favorites in this one. I look for Inter Milan to cruise, but that minus 300 number is a little too high for me. Uh, Roma plays Bologna. Uh, the uh, minus 110 in Bologna. Roma has been pretty solid bunch uh, this year, so I definitely look forward them to uh, cruise in this one, but I wouldn't be willing to uh, 
bet on that uh, minus 110. Napoli Sampdoria, easily a heavily favored Napoli side who's been playing great soccer since the uh, death of Diego Maradona. But uh, at minus 250, I, I don't know if you have a way to uh, take that. If I was going to do anything the way Napoli's been scoring, I'd take Napoli's uh, goal line on that side of things. I think they'll score a, another ton of goals. Genoa versus uh, Juventus should be a snooze fest. Uh, another snooze fest. Uh, Milan's playing Parma, and uh, Milan should cruise, especially with the way they're playing late. So not a great fixture list in Serie A this week, but uh, still a really tight race with a lot of big-time teams in that uh, Serie A table. And last but not least, we'll move to Ligue uh, uh, Paris Saint-Germain versus Lyon. Always an entertaining game. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain minus 190. Uh, the plus 425 for Lyon. They uh, always uh, have at least a decent amount of talent. Uh, not the kind of talent to mass up versus PSG. But if you can get one of those lazy PSG weekends, especially uh, this weekend after uh, they move on in the group stage, I definitely think uh, the plus twenty four twenty five it would be worth a little bit of a long shot wager. Lille versus Bur- Bordeaux. I don't know how entertaining the fixture is, but uh, Lille has played some uh, pretty decent soccer of late. All right, so that's our look across Europe and review of the Champions League. Let's go to Rita Cinema and the Mank Review. All right, we're here with Rita Cinema to do a review of the movie Mank, the David Fincher, uh, I'd say Oscar bait film. It's definitely getting a lot of pub, so we'll drive right into it. What'd you make of this film, Mank? Well, uh, it was long anticipated. We've been hearing talk about this being a Oscar contender for a little while now, so I've been anxious to see it just to see if it stood up to that test. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, this is a film that has been brought to the screen by director David Fincher, who is well-known for, very well-known for his work among some of his films are Alien 3, 7, Fight Club, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, Gone Girl. Um, and recently, uh, he has done some acclaimed work on Netflix as well with House of Cards and Mindhunter. And, you know, he's a director who has been nominated and been on films that have won numerous awards, including Academy Awards. And, um, this one then is also being touted that way. One other thing I, I came across, um, that I didn't realize was that one of the first things David Fincher did was produce a couple of Madonna videos back in the 80s. I guess it was the 80s. Yes. And one of them was Vogue, which happens to be one of my all-time favorite music videos. Yeah. He came from the uh, sort of 90s generation who uh, made their way into uh, film from uh, making music videos. Uh, Him, Michael Mann, uh, Michael Bay uh, would be your others. And uh, he's probably the uh, 90s generation's director with a uh, man, uh, Bay, and I'd say Tarantino. If you were going back in time and being like, these are 90s movies directors, I think those four would probably hit your list as uh, well, the big one. And uh, I 
sort of have comparisons to this film in uh, Tarantino's film uh, last year that also was sort of was a tribute to old Hollywood in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right, it, so right, right. I, you sort of got both uh, guys, yeah. uh, you know, pictures. This is a very different kind of film. Yes, though, very though, different, but, yes. but both yeah. they're sort of tributes to old Hollywood. Now, yeah. Tarantino's was a little later. Uh, this one's a little... Uh, actually true old Hollywood right. when it's uh, sort of kicking off into yeah. the mainstream. Well, needless to say, Fincher mm-hmm. is one of the most acclaimed and recognized contemporary directors of film, I think. And um, I felt I feel like after watching this and thinking about his movies, he does have a bit of a film noir type uh, style to many of his films. Um, not dark, dark, but at least... An, underbelly of darkness you know well i think that's where uh uh i probably split i like his dark dark ones uh seven zodiac uh fight club and uh this one sort of falls into his uh you know other side the benjamin button uh side the uh yeah uh the social network side his more uh I'd say contemporary films. Anyway, I think um, it, when you think about House of Cards or Mindhunter, though, uh, those have a dark side, very dark, violent kind of side to them, too. But they, you know, I don't think you'd call them the same as like no. Seven or Fight Club. Or, no, he's yeah. he's definitely sort of gone away from that other than the uh, Gone Girl. I think yeah. sort of was a more of a throwback, though. That yeah. was more... Uh, it wasn't so sadistic like Seven or Five right. Club. It was more uh, thriller-ish. Right. Uh, all right, so let's get well, into... Yeah, I was going to say, it, uh, I think, interestingly enough, you know, his father wrote this script. I was going to say, we need to talk about uh, Mank, don't we? Um, his father wrote this script, and he wrote. his father was a writer, journalist as, as well, and um, actually he wrote it several decades ago. And apparently, uh, you know, it's taken quite a while to bring it to screen. I think next Netflix finally gave well, it the yeah, go-ahead. Uh, studios had, turned it down a bunch, and yes. uh, Netflix uh, threw money and right. gave him the green light to do what he wanted. Yeah. But I went into this film, if you know anything about it, thinking it was a film about the writing of Citizen Kane. And, of course, it is a little bit. But, um, you know, and of course, Citizen Kane is often considered one of the greatest films in cinema history and has uh, a bit of controversy around it, too. Um, But uh, this is really, I mean, it is, the center of the story is, of course, about Herman Mankiewicz, who um, wrote Citizen Kane. You know, that's part of the controversy of who wrote it. Um, But this film really is about him. It's about Herman Mankiewicz, I mean, and not so much about Citizen Kane. And it's really about the, I think it's about the old, the contract writers who worked with the studios, and it's about whole, uh, old Hollywood back in the 30s and, and 40s. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the business and the politics of old Hollywood, and frankly, a lot of those people just weren't all that nice. This isn't a glamorous, I mean, sort of uh, group of people. Um and I think it's kind of good to know that going in. It's not a film about Citizen Kane. And the reason I say that is when I've talked about this movie with with uh, people, um, they, they immediately it's like, oh, I don't like Citizen Kane or... Uh, 
I haven't seen it in a long time. And, and after I saw it, I was like, well, really, that's not the point. You don't have to. It, it helps to have seen it, uh, I think. But uh, so, you know, but this isn't this is a movie about the man himself, really, and kind of the situation around him, uh, Hollywood around him at, at the time. And, um, you know, and of course, there is the underlying story of uh Mank uh, and Orson Welles and who took credit for the writing and and I I think um, you know that is part of it too. But um, Mank is one of, he he's a fairly egotistical kind of jerk, frankly, and um, he's fueled by alcohol. He's an alcoholic and and I think uh, you know it it uh, that's part of the the story. And he's he and other writers, contract writers at the time are are really. Um, uh, very much in uh, a, a, there's a big difference between them and all these powerful suits, so to speak, it, it management type people and and heads of studios uh, in the Hollywood studios then who and and other people around them who who were about the money and about making um, you know the the movies. Uh, successful making their studios successful and basically that's what you see the just in terms of a summary of this a quick summary of this film it's it's a a combination of flashbacks and current time showing how Mank uh came about uh meeting a lot of the people who were involved in this story uh of writing uh, of citizen kane and about his time um they uh away locked away in a cabin in the middle of nowhere uh writing this how orson wells uh, contacted him and and then made sure he was secluded and and could write on it and try to keep him away from alcohol and that kind of thing um but it's also a story i i think too of uh hollywood you know the writers and how they interacted and then how they interacted with all the studio people how they sold an idea for a film that sort of thing and and that makes it um, uh, very interesting. Now, um, I've got a few observations. I don't know if you want to interject before well, I go into Well, I was just it. going to say, uh, I came in thinking this was going to be more, uh, not a sort of, I'd say biographical. It's not really a biographical. No. It's more a, uh, cut in time. Of, yeah. Slice of life of, of his. Herman Mankiewicz. Yeah. Uh, a little like the, uh, Ollie film in 2001. It's not a biography. It's a slice in time of, you know, when he's going to Africa to fight George Foreman. This is the same sort of, uh, uh stylistic yeah. type thing. And I thought it was going to be more, uh, about, you know, him and Orson Welles battle. Yeah. Him and, uh, you know, the, battle over Citizen Kane with, you know, uh, uh, Randolph Hearst. And right. I thought it was going to sort of be, you know, who had a credit get distributed, how uh, Citizen Kane, you know, yeah. pretty much uh, it made essentially every rich person angry. Right. <laughs> but um, so I thought that's what I, I was getting into when I'm going in. And maybe that was a little bit of my uh, sort of distaste for what I got where uh, basically I just got Herman Mankiewicz's life as right. he was well, trying to just, write this. Just that one yes. little slice of life. But you see his interaction with a lot of different people before he started writing. And you see a little bit about how he gets to meet and know William Randolph Hearst and, uh, you know, who basically Citizen Kane, yes. you know, is about. Um, and uh, and and you, you see... Um, I think how he built relationships with some of the people around yes. him in the, the, and that's one of my, 
my observations on this film. There are many, many characters in this film, and most of them were real people. Um, they were writers, they were studio people, they were uh, movie stars, and I think that, well, frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm not young, but I didn't know a lot of these people, and I had to go, I did a little reading beforehand, and I found an article that kind of gave a who's who <laughs> of everybody in Mank, and it really helps going into watching the movie this, uh, to know a little bit about who all these people are. Um, and uh, then it, it, the story means a little more if, yeah. you, if you know that. I was going to say. If you don't, you're lost. You don't really actually have to watch Citizen Kane. Uh, no, but you need to know who basically the, these people are. Basically, what you probably should do is just uh, maybe read the story of what Citizen Kane was and then who all these people that uh, Citizen Kane sort of affected yeah. and how it came about. And uh, that would give you a sort of who's who of right. who's in this movie and what their but role turned out to be. Many of it. them are famous yes. <laughs> script writers and journalists and writers from that time, uh, you know, along with the studio uh, uh, big wigs. You yes. know? And, but, it, you know, I don't think the average person is going to know who all these people are. No. I think... You either have to do some background or you have to be a, a cinema history buff and to, to know. Well, uh, I think that's know. where we, we get the full circle. Yeah. Yeah. I have the cinema well, history and you read up on it and I you know who was it who. It helped me enormously in appreciating the yes, movie. I but think. I don't uh, think you really need to watch Citizen Kane. No. I, and in fact, it's been eight. I have to admit, it's been a long while since I watched it, and I did not watch it before I watched Meg. Yeah. I kind of want to go back and watch it now, to tell you the truth, mostly because of the, you know, William Randolph Hearst and yes. that character, and, and also Marion Davies, too. Um, so, my my next observation is really about the performances, and um, I, I really did think they were superb. Gary Oldman... Um, uh, let's face it, he's a good actor, and he stood out uh, playing Mank. Um, though there, uh, I will say, I have read a couple of pieces that um, uh, criticize uh, his uh, the choice, uh, the casting of him in the role of Herman Mankiewicz, mainly because um, uh, Gary Oldman is, I mean, he's British, He's uh, he plays an American, but uh, in this, I mean, he plays, he doesn't do a British accent in this. He is American, but he is a British person and um, uh, very Anglo. And of course, Herman Mankiewicz was Jewish. And I think there are people who feel like it's ethnically not particularly accurate um, in, in having Gary Oldman um, uh, play him. But you cannot dispute that he does a just a really fine, fine job. He's very good in the role. Yeah, I thought the performances in this were yeah, very really, good. really good. I just, uh, I thought Gary Ullman was great. Um, I thought Amanda Savide was really good. Yeah, I me too. Also didn't even mind Lily Collins too much, uh, much yes. better than her yeah. TV performance. She, the yes, she, she has we redeemed herself week. after Emily in Paris, because mm -hmm. I was like, uh, well, I, I don't want to do a review of that show, but 
frankly, I thought Lily Collins was wasted in it, but she does a fine job in this. I agree. Amanda Seafree as Marion Davis is outstanding, um, very believable. And I thought uh, Arliss Howard is the actor who plays Louis B. Mayer, and I thought he was Yeah, I thought Arliss was really good. I mean, he's just the most annoying man in the world. Yes. You know, but he had a lot of power, and he was good friends with William Randolph Hearst. Um, the so, only one I didn't like, I, I will say, was Burke as uh, Orson Welles. As Orson Welles. Now, but he's in it so he's, little. He's only yeah. got uh, three or four scenes, yeah. really, in the whole film, and they're quick, uh, just him shouting mostly. Yes, right. <laughs> um, and uh, Or talking on the telephone yes. to somebody about it. Um, so anyway, the, there's no question that the performances are, are top-rate. Um I think the thing, though, that stands out about this film, I, I feel like, in uh, is the technical quality. Um, it's a black and white film, and yet, and and it's made. Oh, the sound, the cinematography, the kind of. It's not a real stark black and white. It's like this dreamy sort of black and white, and you honestly feel like you're watching an old Hollywood film, and uh, except the screen is large, of course. And I was just mesmerized by it. I mean, it pulled me in. I, you know, I felt like I, as I say, it didn't take any imagination to think that I was back in the 1930s watching these these people being filmed. Um, I just really thought that was, if, if this doesn't win awards for that, I will be shocked. Uh, or either that or it's got some really stiff competition. But th- well, this, that I don't was, think so this year. <laughs> that was the standout. Uh, aspect of this film. Well, yes, I, I think uh, you want to watch it for that. Is what I think I'm that's where this film really is uh, just a sort of masterpiece, a uh, vision of art. Really, uh, the right. way they make this black and white and the feel and the setting. You're, you're sitting in old Hollywood when you watch this with those performances mixed with that center photography and music and editing. It's just uh, yeah. it really puts you into sort of that time of uh, old Hollywood, which is really where I think this movie uh, stands out more than anything. I thought Fincher did a great job with all that. They did, it really should win awards for, for those um, technical aspects, I think. It, very, very fascinating. All right, so, so we have to get past the technical yes. and performances into yeah. the film overall. Okay. And I think we both have a... Here's what I think. I, I found the movie fascinating to watch. Um, it really is a nice snapshot of old Hollywood. And also, we haven't mentioned, there's a political story that goes along with it that really, um, I think, probably fits nicely with today's world in the sense that it's a story. I mean, it does involve William Randolph Hearst and um, his he, he and Louis B. Mayer and the amount of money that rich people put into making a difference in politics, uh, in creating fake news or uh, fake communications. And they work toward uh, um, making sure that Upton Sinclair is not elected for, I think it's governor that he's running for. And so it has a little bit of today's political world in it from long ago. Um, But to tell you the truth, that's interesting. It's an interesting aspect of it. Whether it's true or not, it's an interesting aspect. And as I say, it's a beautiful film to watch. But to tell you the truth, um, overall, I thought the story of Mankiewicz was wanting a bit. Uh, I kind of wanted to know more about him and what happened in this whole situation with he and and uh, 
and um, Orson Welles. And also, I have read that despite the fact that the controversy was about Welles taking credit for the writing that Mankiewicz did, uh, John Hausman was uh, one of the, he worked closely with Mankiewicz and was a very good friend and there is some question as to whether or not he did some of the writing as well and, and never really took credit for well, it. Yeah, that's what I was going but, to say. I think the actual interesting part of uh, this whole overall story in time is the Orson Welles and Mankiewicz and... John you know, Hausman. Yes, and Hausman yeah. and, you know, everybody yeah. butting heads over who yes. wants credit. And, you know, you have three very large egos and I'd say really sort of I'd say assholey people. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, really. To deal with here, and they're all sort of, they start friends, and as everything goes, they sort of become uh, bitter enemies as everybody wants credit for. Frankly, the only person, character you really like who's decent is uh, the Amanda Seyfried uh, character, maybe the Lily Collins character, too. But, you know, she's kind of, uh, I think. You know, you kind of like her, but the rest of them, woo, and um, they're kind of jerks. And uh, I think, um, you know what, when it came right down to it, I, I really, without that aspect of it, a little more personal story about, you know, in-depth personal story about these three men who, who created this um, uh, movie or script, um, I, I just don't care about Herman Mankiewicz, to be perfectly honest. I don't think I really, after I watched this, I thought, oh, ho, hum. Um, I really not sure that uh, I uh, wanted a movie about Mank. Yeah, I think that's where it it sort of just gets uh, long. long yeah, I, I really don't it's care like, about him. I don't care if there's a movie about him. How much do we want to stare <laughs> at a writer and his writing process? Right. We sort of need the controversy and we didn't really get the controversy we, we just got a sort of manic writer struggling yeah. to get a script uh to completion in a short window i'm sure i should want you know i i should like this better but this film better but frankly other than the technique of the film and the quality of the acting i was sort of eh, who cares i i don't yeah that's, <laughs> i was glad when it ended that's sort of where i am and uh that's sort of where i usually sit on uh feature films like this i i social network gets a lot of credit but i was i liked so, that film i was sort of bored and like who really cares about yeah. this and i i was sort of the same the way benjamin button was as well i mean all well crafted and well made yes. films but uh sometimes you just yeah they don't get much out they of don't it. grab me like yeah. uh say the gone girl or fight club or uh you know seven or even the game i i really enjoyed the game as well where he gets you into it and you don't want to turn it off I, I felt i could turn this off and come back to it at sort of any point and not you know I be missing it all that much despite the fact that i didn't really like the movie that much um i am interested in watching it again because i want to see you know it i want to see it again well that's it, where i was going to ask uh maybe a couple rewatches where you start to pick up yeah maybe little things that right. uh, you don't pick up on the first one where you're focusing uh solely on the story but uh i don't know if i could make myself rewatch it <laughs> where that's where i get uh I might was, have to skip the dinner scene where he throws yes. up. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, like, uh, 
Did you like this or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh, or? Once Upon a Time yeah. in Hollywood. See, that's where I... No question. I loved that one. And and frankly, it took place more in a time of my youth, yes. too. This one takes place in the time of my mother's youth. So, and I just... I know. thought that one... Now, it might be because uh, that one used fictionalized characters with the background of old Hollywood. Uh, yes. And this one used real characters. Well, that one combined real characters yes. with fictionalized characters. Yes. Uh, and it was just... Uh, very clever. Yes. I, I found I could probably rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yes, I could definitely. Over and over yeah. more than I could maybe yeah. go back in this. But I thought I might uh, give this one another shot and go Well, back I really wanted on. to watch this one over again, more to look at the technique and not so much about the story. Because yeah. when you're watching it the first time, you want to try to get the story and the characters and evaluate the script and, and that sort of thing. So anyway... All right, so what did you give it as okay. a grade? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that as films go this year, I mean, it's not been a, you know, it's been a rotten, 2020 has been a rotten year, and I don't mean just for films, I mean for life in general, but um, I do believe it's worth watching. I mean, take the time to watch it. Um, so I recommend it, I have been recommending it to family and friends, Uh without any guilt, um, but I could only give it a seven, and may, most of that is because the acting was great, um, and the technique used in the filming, it's it's a great film to watch visually yeah. and, and to listen to. So you're a lot nicer than I am. Oh, uh, I'm always higher than you are. Technique-wise and uh, performance-wise, I think this is a brilliant film, yeah. but uh, overall watch-wise, <laughs> I have it as a four. I just, okay. I don't, I... I it might be just because I had a high expectations going in, and when I watched it, I expected more, and I got uh, sort of what Netflix has been, a sort of average movie, and that's why it sort of gets a four. But uh, technique-wise, and I would recommend people watch it just for the visualization of watching it and it's a sort of cool era in time right uh, and it's going to get a lot of attention when the awards come around and i think that makes you want to be aware of it and watch it and yes be able to i would never say it. don't watch this Me film too. but uh i was just a little disappointed in the i was disappointed overall too. uh result of it all right so that's our show for today we're going to watch what are we going to watch? What did we the agree? Prom. The prom. Ryan Murphy's The Prom on Netflix uh, next week. So uh, be sure to take a viewing of that and uh, we'll have our review next week. All right. We go from the movies to the TV realm with Dr. M. Sage. We're going to review The Crown season four. Now, uh, I said the crown, which is good because uh, I've been saying the queen all week and it's now burned into my head. So uh, we'll wrong, see how Wrong many... Peter Morgan. Wrong yes, Peter Morgan. Yes, I know. We'll see how long it takes me before I uh, say the queen again. <laughs> but I, I got it right in our opening. So uh, uh, good start. The crown, season four. All right. So what'd you make of the crown season four? Well... First of all, a little bit of background, uh, season four, if you haven't seen The Crown before, it's the story of Elizabeth II and the House of Windsor. It's the story of The Crown. It's the story of her ascension into power and how she maintains this power, if you can call it that, actually. It doesn't seem like she has a lot of power, in my opinion. I think and definitely by this four, part of it, she doesn't. She doesn't, she doesn't have a lot to do necessarily it's very ceremonial season four 
uh, includes the Thatcher years and Princess Diana and uh, Charles' marriage, Lady Diana Spencer and Charles's marriage. For anyone who hasn't seen The Crown before, it should be noted that every two years the show changes casts. And so this is the last season with Olivia Coleman as Queen Elizabeth and Tobias Menzies as Prince Philip and uh, Josh O'Connor as the as uh, the uh, Charles Prince Charles yes excuse me and um um we have uh, Lady Diana Spencer played uh by uh Emma um Aaron yeah Aaron Corn sorry for some reason I forgot her name yeah Uh-oh, no problem that's a bad uh, she's sign. sort of a that's not a good sign, probably. <laughs> uh, I think that Peter Morgan has stayed true to himself in writing this show. I actually still think season one was his best season, but uh, he likes to use silences a lot. He did that very well at the beginning it, uh, in season one, where you really got the sense of how sort of lonely the queen was and how little she could interact with anyone. And I thought that was very good. He uses them this time, mostly in the scenes with Diana. Uh, You get a sense of how lonely she is. Um, This show has a weightiness to it. It's kind of depressive, uh, a little bit oppressive maybe. Uh, It's trying to show that the queen's burden is a heavy one. But uh, it doesn't make me want to be a member of the British royal family. <laughs> what about no, you, Champ? Uh, you want to be a member of the royal family? Well, yeah. Uh, it seems like uh, most of them can do whatever the hell they want. So, uh, well, that that part is true. They can do what they want, but I don't know. I don't know if that would be so great necessarily in real life. No, I it, thought. It, um, oh, I do want to ask. Tiresome. Okay, there, there is. Uh, there is a big in the first couple of episodes. I'm not. I'm trying not to give any spoilers or too many spoilers away here today. There's a big scene involving hunting an elk, and I'm curious, Champ. What did you make of the wounded elk? I thought it was a metaphor, so I'd like to know what you think it is. <laughs> you thought it was a metaphor. Uh, I guess it probably was, but uh, I don't know. It just seemed like another one of the royal scenes where they're showing they can sort of, I don't know, it's how they're above everything and anything. So that's sort of oh, how you I felt. Talk, you thought of them being above nature, that they can control the elk population. No, just kidding. Yeah, yes, the elk population. Oh. I thought it was a metaphor for um, the royal family, that he's talking about how at this point, you got this wounded elk that comes through in a couple of episodes. I mean, they, they, he belabored that elk, in my opinion. But I thought it was a metaphor for how the royal family is sort of losing power and not real popular. They're kind of limping along like a wounded elk. And here comes Diana. And Diana's the one that enables Philip to shoot the elk and put the trophy up on his wall and I'm thinking ah Diana's the one who is going to be the trophy wife and save the royal family that's an interesting take Uh, you got a lot of it uh, more out of it than I did I just sort (laughs) of oh I don't know I think that probably summarizes my whole feeling on a season four really uh 
I do think uh, this is sort of where you see a lot of the Royals sort of lose power and they uh, sort of move from uh, a sort of more powerful uh, presence into more of a a paparazzi type uh, celebrity, uh, more, you know, out there just to be out there and be famous more than anything. And I think this era is where it starts to turn that way more than anything, uh, certainly with the presence of Margaret Thatcher, who sort of undercuts uh, a lot of the royals' duty and stuff uh, in this. Um, I just... I agree. I didn't like... I don't like this era. Maybe that was more of it when it sort of becomes more just fame mongering and uh, we're out here to be out here and uh, love us and watch us and see us uh, more than anything. I I love season one and maybe it's just because that era I'm not, you know, as familiar with because I wasn't born at the time. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the make-believe of that era is probably better than when I'm, I'm a little more alive and I know sort of what's going on in uh, this sort of present day era of my life. I think you're right. I think that it suffers from people knowing too much about the Royal family and their popularity has increased through the years. It, It wasn't that they were so unpopular when Elizabeth became queen. It was more, I think, um, as you when you referred to the paparazzi culture around them, that wasn't necessarily the case in the 1940s. There weren't people just clamoring to take her photograph all the time. Whereas now I'm sure they're camped out to try to get anybody's photograph any day of the week. So I think that that is important uh, to note in watching this series that the times have changed and you can see that come through, but that doesn't necessarily make the series more interesting. That yeah. it's more that it's in the modern day. Yeah, that. that I think the acting just... is still. Oh, oh I go ahead, was... please. I I thought it was still written really well. Uh, you know, has it's been, and I, I thought the acting. I, I still love uh, Olivia Coleman. It's sad to sort of see her go, but uh, I I love Olivia Coleman in this role. She's just great. But uh, it just uh, maybe a little too modern now for my taste. I say modern. It's forty years ago that this sort of era of events took place but uh you're aging yourself champ yes i know i'm starting to age out of everything too but uh yeah maybe it's just a little too modern for me uh in this era i think i think the uh i think the writing really is still top-notch uh peter morgan has a lot of control over the show and he does a very good job i think olivia coleman and tobias menzies were excellent as Elizabeth and Philip. I think that one of my favorite parts of this season is the two of them having conversations in private where they'll have conversation over breakfast or something and they sound like a married couple. I thought they had really good chemistry together. And Olivia Coleman, I think, makes a wonderful Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, I that might have been uh, the also where I did. I thought this uh, sort of went away a lot from uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, and it sort of focused uh, uh, split. I mean, each episode sort of splits between uh, Thatcher and uh, you know the royal family, and I, I thought it just sort of pulled away. Uh, you had a lot of Princess Di stuff, though. In the middle, she sort of fades away, but. Uh, uh, I thought it, you know, splitting Thatcher's uh, reign in there with the royals and then uh, sort of, I thought uh, Queen Elizabeth took a more of a back seat and uh, I sort of like 
that's the part that entertains me or has entertained me in the past. Uh, I didn't love the Diana stuff. It just, uh, too creepy for my taste or I think the uh, Diana stuff is difficult to watch. Anybody who hasn't seen it, it's kind of difficult to watch. Sort of hindsight being 2020 now that, you know, essentially she's going to turn herself in famous and then essentially that fame is going to end up killing her nonetheless. So it's just sort of, I didn't like that part. And I was curious, uh, what'd you make of the Thatcher? Um, I didn't love that either. I had a real problem with Gillian Anderson's Margaret Thatcher. I thought her accent was difficult. I thought that um, it was difficult to take. I, I didn't like it, actually, at all. I didn't think she sounded like Thatcher. I thought she looked like Thatcher. Gillian Anderson is a very small woman, though, and I thought she was way too petite to be Margaret Thatcher, frankly sometimes drove me crazy because she had a way of tilting her head and she would stick her throat out. And the way she talked, I thought Margaret Thatcher's having a stroke on the screen. So it really (laughs) did bother me. I kept thinking, oh my God, they're showing Margaret Thatcher having a stroke. I don't remember Margaret Thatcher having a stroke on, you know, when sitting with the queen. So I did, I didn't like it. I thought it was too strained. I didn't think she did a very good job, frankly. I didn't think she did awful. Uh, she certainly had an in for the part. I will say that uh, when you're uh, for those spouse. of you who don't know, Peter Morgan and Jillian Anderson are a couple. So uh, I didn't think she was awful. Uh, I didn't think she totally fit the role. But uh, I also thought uh, they tried to make her a little more of a sympathetic character. And uh, I'm not, you know, a master of British history here. But uh, from what I've gathered in my small knowledge is Margaret Thatcher is not totally beloved in the world of British history uh, or by the Brits all that much. And I I thought they tried a little hard in this season to make her a little more sympathetic than I I think uh, she really is in the the real-life version of Margaret Thatcher. They did. They made Margaret Thatcher very sympathetic. They glossed over a lot of domestic policy that was detrimental to many people in Great Britain at the time. I don't know if they did that. I'm not sure why they did that. I don't think they needed to do that. That's what I didn't know if that was because the two were a couple and they didn't want to make her look bad. Or It makes you wonder. I just... That part threw me a little bit because uh, it just it seemed odd that they try to make Margaret Thatcher a little bit of a sympathetic figure here when uh, she was not really. I'd say let's go with polarizing. Polarizing would be polarizing a is a very good way to put it. She is very polarizing. What did you think of Emma Corrin as uh, Diana? I actually thought she was pretty good. Uh, I thought they cast the part all right. Uh, you know, especially, you know, they sort of got the age-appropriate Diana. Uh, I believe she was the exact same age as Princess Diana when the, they were together as the actress. And uh, for somebody who hadn't really done a whole lot, she, you know, sort of a newbie uh, onto the scene. So I didn't mind her uh, character that much. I thought she did a pretty decent job. What did you make of her? I was not so enamored with her. I thought Princess Diana, Diana Spencer, had a charisma about her that I did not get from this actress. Just tilting your head to one side and looking demure didn't 
make me think she was Diana. She looked very, they did a very good job in terms of look, she looked the part. Uh, she was a little small. Diana was very tall. She, um, I don't think she could dance, whereas Diana could dance. Anyone who hasn't seen it, you will see there's a lot of kind of cringy dancing moments in the in in this season. I thought that Emma could have done a better job in not just trying to imitate Diana, but maybe getting more into her charismatic character. You just felt sympathy for her all the time. I didn't really get anything but a sympathetic feel. No real like love no admiration nothing she just kind of whined a lot yeah see i i thought maybe that's what they were going for maybe uh just a sympathetic sort of i'd say out of your place uh sort of girl who pops in and uh is the oh i don't know how to put it she's there to create a presence because she's stunning to look at and you know, she carries herself like a princess, but she's never really accepted as a princess. Let's put it that way. True. She was accepted more than some of the other royals, maybe. But yes. she was never really a part of the family. I think that's what season four gave me a sense of is it's almost impossible to be a part of the family if you're not born into the family. And even if you're born into the family, you're not necessarily a big part of it. My favorite line in all of season four is when Prince Charles is looking at his brothers and his sister and he says, you're all just fringe. And I thought, yeah. hmm, okay. I, I hope he actually said that because I'd be like, man, that's a great, horrible thing for your brother to say to you. <laughs> what did you make of Camilla? You know, I think that actress is awesome. I think that she plays Camilla so well. I actually prefer Camilla to Diana. <laughs> I think Camilla has a lot of spunk, and I think that she stands up to Charles, which Diana just fights with him. I, I, I love Camilla's character. What about you? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed her character. I, I, that was probably one of the uh, parts I did enjoy about this season was uh, sort of Camilla's character. I could have used probably a little more of her, but uh, I guess that wasn't uh, really. I guess we're not supposed to get more of her, but I agree. Yes. I think we could have used more Camilla. I think that Camilla is pretty, uh, pretty funny and just stronger than anyone else on the show, actually. Yeah, I, I think that's where I, I liked those sort of scenes and uh, maybe that undertone uh, more than anything. So uh, that's that was where I was. I liked that part of the show, but uh, the Thatcher stuff I was off on and uh, the Die and uh, Charles stuff I was a little off on, which that made up most of the season. So that's probably why I have uh -oh. such ill feelings, Stuart. This, this is sounding bad. I'm, I'm thinking you're going to give the crown, the, this crown jewel of Netflix, a bad review, champ. I don't know how you can do that. Well, I, I can tell you, you aren't going to like the ratings. So uh, I will say we're grading on curves here. As last <laughs> week, we did Emily in Paris. I don't expect anything from Emily in Paris. I assume it will be terrible. The Crown, 
I expect greatness from and a awesome show. So when it, I don't enjoy that, it gets a harsher rating than say a, I don't know, boring Emily in Paris that has no girth to it. So when the rating comes, uh, you it are will probably a tough, be harsh. It's you going are to be a harsh. tough reviewer, champ. A tough reviewer. Now, if you ask me overall, still, still series-wise, I still would give this series a, a high grade. But uh, this season, I just, I was, I think it's running out of a little bit of steam. Now, uh, that's also probably a personal thing too, as season, as these shows go, you know, season after season. I begin to tire of them. So uh, that might be a little Mm. bit too. Do you think that you would want to watch season five? Uh, Are we still doing reviews by uh, the time season (laughs) five comes out? Ah, it's like me with Emily in Paris. Hmm, If we're reviewing it, you'll want to watch it. Well, I am a big fan of The Crown and I don't think that this season was as bad as you. I thought it was pretty, pretty good, actually. Yeah, uh, I will probably still watch season five, though we're getting even more modern. So I don't if I was out on the modernness of this one, I think as we grow into the 90s, I might uh, even you more might so be in trouble. <laughs> yes, I know. might be in trouble. But I guess the children might pop in there at this point. So uh, maybe that'll give it some new life. Mm, I don't know if they're going to go that far. <laughs> mm. Oh, I bet they, I bet they're at least background characters. Could be. I don't know that uh, Harry will allow that now that he's employed by Netflix. <laughs> All right. So we talked about rating. What are you giving this as a rating for season four? Well, prepare to clutch your pearls, champ. I'm giving it a four because I do think it's binge-worthy. And if you are a fan of The Crown or you are a fan of British royalty, I think you will like it. I also thought felt that the storylines were, were, for the most part, believable, and the acting is just so good yeah, for the most uh, part. Writing and acting, quite good. I'd still give a five. Uh, overall, season four, I'm going on a two. Oh, not even binge worthy. Yes, I know. Uh, Background fodder for you, eh? Watch seasons one and two and probably three and then uh, get to season four when you can. (laughs) I actually wouldn't disagree with that. All right. So anything else you want to talk about on the crown that you have notes on? Well... What I wanted to know what you thought of the costuming. We always oh, talk costuming. We do always talk costuming. Oh, it's I didn't the eighties. Yes, I know. That's what. Once again, I think we're getting too modern. And while I love the say eighties clothing and say uh, Stranger Things and uh, the nostalgia, maybe this was a little too much of a formal eighties uh, environment of clothing. Well, I come from being a teenager in the 80s, and dressing like Diana was definitely a goal. Although, I didn't remember her wearing so many ruffles and Peter Pan collars and 
little tied necklines. Although I guess if I look back at my 80s pictures, I probably am wearing the same kind of things. Well, I was in a lot of onesies in the 80s, so uh, (laughs) I didn't quite have Did they have ruffles, though? (laughs) I I hope. I don't know. I think a lot of them had Winnie the Pooh on them, so. Oh, okay. Well, hey, you know what? That's pretty snazzy. I like that. I thought they did a a good job um, with the wedding gown. Actually, yeah, I, and it's I, I and they that. left it. They that scene is very short. I expected this whole well, big drawn oh, that's out. That's what thing. I, I was. I forgot to ask you. They sort of just uh, skipped the wedding altogether. <laughs> yeah, that sh- shocked me. I really expected them to have a long wedding scene, and there wasn't anything. Yeah, it, it was so short, I, I meant to ask you, and then I totally forgot, because there wasn't really any wedding scene in the whole thing. All of a sudden, they were sort of married and uh, on their honeymoon, uh, talking about random uh, nutritional books that... Uh, yeah, the, uh, I thought that was like. very strange. Maybe they, maybe Morgan did that on purpose, simply because that wedding was so popular, and so many people watched it that he did not want to try to recreate it. Yeah, but it's still I like was the most watched thing ever. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised. All right, so that's our review of The Crown Season 4. Next week, well, what did we say we were going to watch? We're going to review The Undoing. Oh, The Undoing, that's right. All right, so The Undoing next week. Uh, I haven't started it yet, so uh, maybe we'll... I, I can't say if I dislike or like so far. So maybe we'll be uh, alike on this one. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> All right. That's our TV review of The Crown. I got through it the whole time without saying The Queen. So uh, bonus there. Congratulations. <laughs> all right. That was a great show. We Be sure to follow us on all. Be sure to follow all Greenlight Network's podcasts. The uh, Drive-In Dish podcast will have our college basketball picks Every day of the week, something will pop up on there. Dynamite David joined us for his first uh, foray into the college basketball season. Our football time podcast, we got our college football picks with Dynamite David. Uh, we have Achilles Rain and me on the football time podcast doing our NFL picks. Uh, so be sure to follow all Greenlight Network's picks on wherever podcasts are. Be sure to go to our Facebook page. Like us, follow us. You'll get lots of great video. You can watch me and Achilles Rain doing a couple different live shows during the week. You can follow me on Instagram at GLNChamp5. It's also my Twitter handle. That's our show, and we're out.